0: And we forget that the purpose of worship, first and foremost, is just to give God glory because God deserves our, our praise, right? It's, it's that God is the audience, not the congregation. The congregation are the performers that are performing for an audience of one.
1: Hi, I'm Phil, and you're listening to Drinks with the Pastor as part of the Imagine Church Ministry Network. Dr. Brandon Hancock is the Assistant Dean of Wesley Seminary and Professor of Practical Theology and Worship. Dr. Hancock feels called to serve God's kingdom by guiding the spiritual and theological formation of individuals and congregation, and has served a local church where he fills the role of pastor and worship leader, shaping worship services that in turn shape the church. Brandon is married to Gloria, and they have three children. When he's not reading, writing, or teaching, Brandon is usually found making noise on one of the 11 instruments that he plays or eating ice cream while watching a movie or TV show with Gloria. All right, so we are here with uh, Dr. Brandon Hancock uh, at Wesley Seminary. Uh, Happy to have him uh, here with us. I've been looking forward to this one. So like we start off, usually, Brandon, if you could just take a couple minutes, uh, just introduce yourself. Who are you and kind of what do you currently do?
0: Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Phil. This is great and um, appreciate you doing this podcast and resourcing the church in this way. Um, I serve as uh, assistant dean and I teach worship and and practical theology at Wesley Seminary here at Indiana Wesleyan. I'm in my um, eighth year full-time and my 11th year which is kind of hard for me to believe teaching in some capacity i started adjuncting here uh, in 2011 as i was serving full-time as a worship pastor at a church in ohio Uh, i'm ordained in the church of the nazarene so i don't know if you know nazarenes but don't hold that against me you know we can be a little weird um i grew up not going to movies you know because nazarenes and not going to school dances and things like that um and so, you know, Nazarenes don't believe in, uh, in drinking or premarital sex because it leads to dancing. And so, um, <laughs> you can leave that one in. <laughs> I'll leave that in. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I come from a line of Nazarene pastors. My dad's a pastor and, uh, uh his brothers are in ministry and his dad was, uh, a, a pastor and a district superintendent in our, in our tribe. And uh, so I'm on loan to the Wesleyans to teach at their seminary, uh, but I, I lead worship at our local Nazarene church here in, in Marion, Indiana, um, which is because of the university, a, a very Wesleyan town in terms of the Wesleyan holiness um, church presence. There's lots of larger Wesleyan churches, but so we have like one little Nazarene church and that's my church. We run about hundred and my wife and I work with college students and teach a Sunday school class and, and lead worship there every week and um yeah it's great we have three kids um i grew up in the nashville tennessee area used to travel with a christian rock band that was epically underrated uh in its time in the late 90s did a couple albums that uh you know you could have bought in christian bookstores back when there were christian bookstores that sold cds and things like that and even cassettes i know that we had our our albums were released on cassette tape late 90s um and uh yeah, I play guitar and saxophone. You and I have a lot in common on the on the music front, the instrumental front, and uh, that's probably enough. That's great. A lab about myself.
1: Um, cassettes. I mean, I owned cassettes, uh, so I I remember making mixtapes off the radio. Yeah, uh, you know, you'd wait and hope and hit record right at the right, right, at the right time. Right um, One of the questions I I always ask because I you know people in different you know. Spaces and whatnot is uh, the biggest surprise that you've had in the last year. Um, ministry, personal, kind of just, you know, what's something in in your life that surprised you in the last year, maybe it's something God showed up in, uh, or or whatnot. Um, and then
0: we'll get into some stuff about worship. Yeah, well. The biggest surprise of the last year, and if I, I guess if I could expand it out to a year and a half and just think about covid in general um and maybe this does kind of connect to worship in a way i've been really surprised at what the pandemic has you know we focused a lot on on the negatives and all the things that it's prevented us from doing um and and, and maybe at best tried to see in the upside as like god giving us all a time out you know and just kind of a, a a pause to have to slow down and you know reconnect with our families and things like that and that that's certainly an upside but like i've been really amazed and surprised by the the creative output that i've seen and that i think the pandemic even brought about in me um, and I, being a musician i've noticed it particularly on that front you know people that um that don't typically put a lot of their own artistry out there on the internet or on social media, suddenly being stuck at home and realizing like, man, I can just like turn on my cell phone and play the guitar and put that on Instagram or put it on Facebook or, um, you know, churches creatively finding ways to connect people when they can't meet in person, um, whether that's worshiping outdoors, whether that's buying streaming equipment so that we can put services online. For, I mean, my little church of a hundred never would have started live streaming our services if it weren't for the pandemic. And so the, the creative um, initiatives to continue to kind of bring positivity and connection, and relationship and and, um, and art, you know, not just musical art, but visual art, uh, the art of, you know, relational connection, um, I think has been really encouraging to me and surprising to me, again, people starting podcasts and doing things that are just new, um, new creative endeavors that have come into being that wouldn't have if it weren't for uh, the the kind of crisis that we were all uh, facing one of my favorite books that I, I've read probably four or five times now um, it has nothing to do with theology or worship or anything but it's called the the war of art uh, play on um, um, Sun Tzu's the art of war but uh, it's Stephen Pressfield who's a novelist and, it, and it's a book called the war of art and he's um, it's kind of a encouragement to conquer your creative blocks and do the thing that you're that you have in you to do whatever that might be, and he he defines art broadly like anything that you would do that would make the world around you a better place. Like that could be starting a business, writing a novel, you know, making an album, um, starting a diet. You know, I mean that we don't think of that as art, but things that you that you would do that would enhance the world around you. And every time you do that, you're going to face resistance. So he personifies resistance in a really interesting way, and like frames it so you can kind of see it as this bully that wants to keep you from doing bringing to birth that thing and uh how to stand up to it and how to get past it and and continue on on your creative journey great little book um, i reread it during re- i reread it during covid yeah the war of art by Stephen pressfield anyway
1: uh no, that's great uh the war of art can you hear me is that working yeah okay great mm-hmm. perfect it looked sounded, it looked my lights were acting weird. Um okay, the war of art. Awesome. No, I agree with that whole creative thing. Um I to see like I it was the first first or second kind of week of March of 2020 when really everything went haywire. And uh a lot of people started to use um what is it called? Uh it's like a it's like a, not a streaming service, but it was like a streaming overlay. You could push your stream to it. Uh, Mm Yeah, it's like church online software or something that it's church made. And that second week, so many churches hopped onto it
0: that it crashed,
1: it crashed the the servers. Like it totally just stopped working, which is a, uh, which is a Testament to the, to the, to churches finding a way to strive on that. we, Mm -hmm. We crashed the internet, Yeah, you know, uh, that's great. So what I want to talk to you about, um, is kind of a broad topic, um, but worship, uh, for churches and church leaders kind of to help uh, clarify some things, maybe look at some tips and different things churches can do to maybe uh, grow in their worship, uh, their sense of worship, not just music, but, but uh, you know, the whole thing, the liturgy, the whole, the whole shebang. So before I start defining things and throwing out big words, in your words, what is worship in a church setting or in, in, in Christianity, what's worship? And then why is that important? Why, why is it something that we should be, you know, looking at in our churches?
0: Yeah, so when I teach worship, I I tend to start with, um, com- I guess, combating, I, this sounds like I'm starting negative, but combating a kind of individualist and highly privatized understanding of worship that I think a lot of, at least modern Western uh, evangelicals, um, tend to Come in as their default, you know so we we tend to think of worship as um, this personal or private thing that I do and I, and I, I would say that worship is personal, it needs to be personal, uh, even corporate worship still needs to be personal, but it's never private. The Christian faith is not a private thing. it's sort of like this is my business and nobody else's business. you know what we're doing when we become christian is is um, giving our our assent and our permission, not just to a set of doctrines, but to, you know, a higher authority that tells us kind of what to do with our lives, and what to do with our time, and what to do with our bodies, and our money, and, but, you know, that it's not up, up to me. I don't just live for myself. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ, so so I often try to start the conversation with um, conceiving of worship, not as, first and foremost, kind of the thing I do in my private devotions, or singing along with Caleb in my car, or something like that, but um, what what the body of Christ does when it gathers together as the kind of physical instantiation of Christ's presence, sourced by the Spirit here on Earth, while Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Right. So, um, what worship is the church gathered to glorify God, um, following after the example of Jesus that we see in Scripture constantly. Being obedient, saying yes to pouring his life out in obedience to God for the life of the world, and that—that's what we do in worship. And so, it's not just singing; it's not just—and um, of course, it isn't just what we do for that hour or so on Sunday morning. It flows out into the rest of life, and it—and so it is both personal and corporate. Uh, it is both day—you know, day to day and gathered. Uh, on the weekend, um, one of my friends, Bert Peterson, who teaches worship at uh, one of our Nazarene schools in Idaho, um, he talks about how, you know, God God breathes the church in for worship or for communion, and then breathes the church out into the world for mission, um, and that's kind of the rhythm of the Christian life. The purpose of gathered worship is to be scattered for mission. The purpose of being scattered for mission is to draw all all people into the worshiping life of the church so um we have to have a broader definition than just like oh it's the songs we sing or or whatever um yeah i hope that's a good starting point i probably should have a shorter elevator speech when somebody says so what is worship mr worship professor um but i immediately go into like (laughs) some of my lectures sorry about that your
1: elevator speeches are are they're lectures and that's okay (laughs) that's why we like it uh i you know i love it we were talking in a class the other day where we said, you know, don't get Brandon started on something because it'll be it'll be dinner before he's before he's made his point on it. So uh, but no, it's great. So what you're saying is I'm, I'm going to try to just see what you see if I got what you said here. Uh, it's not just the time that we're gathered, but it also is what extends in through the week. So if we think of worship as just Sunday, we'd be missing what we're supposed to be doing through the week. Yeah, well. sure. <laughs> and it's also more than just the time of singing. It involves anything, the word anything scares me, it involves all, all the things that we would do that are an action of glorification to God.
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I like to think of, of worship, this isn't a word that I grew up with in, a, in my Nazarene context, but um, when I started to study this in my, in my graduate school process and, and started exploring liturgy and the history of Christian liturgy, um, that word has to do with kind of a public service. Um, it has a secular use outside of just religious ritual. Um, so li- there are liturgies of, of the state, you know, even back into the ancient world, um, the the way that a, uh, you know, a, a soldier would um, swear his oath to, you know, the emperor to, to serve the empire, There was even a what you know when we think of like sacrament, for instance, uh, we think of that as baptism, communion, whatever you know, religious ritual. But even in the ancient world, that oath was was called a sacramentum. It was a you know, it was a um, a, a, a not just a symbolic, but an even more deeply um, uh, powerful act, and those are liturgical acts. And so thinking of worship as liturgy, this public service that's kind of the work of the people in service of the, the greater good um, means that when we gather, it's not, you know, every every aspect of the service is worship. The preaching and our listening to the preaching is worship. Our fellowship, you know, Acts 2 talks about how they came together on the first day of the week for apostles teaching the fellowship the breaking of bread and the prayers doesn't say anything about singing songs you know um and so that's that's what they did when they they gathered um i think you can do worship probably without music i would you know that wouldn't be my preference but um i think you can you can have worship gathered worship without um without music uh, that still fulfills those those four things the fellowship the the teaching, the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread, the prayers. Um, The whole service is a prayer in a certain sense, you know, from start to finish offered up to God. And in that context, we offer praises and it's a fitting human expression to offer those praises in the form of music. And so that's why we do that. Um, It's one of the best ways we've come up with over religious history to to offer praise to our, our God or our gods, even in other <laughs> pre-Christian traditions.
1: Yeah. So with that, I guess one of the things that I, I think about is, um, if, if you're, you know, you're in a church and I, I don't know if it was you that said it, but I, I use this, I use this here at, at Columbia city. Um, I always talk about, uh, somebody one time, and if it wasn't you, you can just still take credit for it. I don't really care. Um, <laughs> said you know i've been to churches where there's beautiful praying there's beautiful uh singing there's a sermon delivered from the word uh there's response there's fellowship and then they hit a pause button and do the offering as if worship stops right so um one of the things i say is like this is an act of worship this is still a continuation of what we've been doing so how do you how do you instill this sense not just with the offering right that's my, just my example that I, I use here uh, to try to put, push that in here, but how do you kind of instill that worshipful sense that from the moment that you step foot to the moment that you step out, every act that we're doing in here is worship, not just the singing. How do you kind of work that worshipful attitude into those some of those other elements of the service? How do you kind of bring a congregation along um, into this sense? Of, of making all of these actions worshipful.
0: Yeah. And it, and it even really begins, you know, the, because it flows from there into all of life and then back into gathered worship, right? Like you could think of worship beginning, like when I go to bed on Saturday night, you know, like I'm, I, I'm, I'm resting so that I can then get up and, and, and go to work, not just because I'm the worship pastor and I, and I have a job to do like an actual job up on the platform to do but because all of the people of God, liturgy is work. It's the work of the people, um, which is interesting because we often think of, like, we talk about Sunday as the Lord's Day, and which is right and appropriate, right? Jesus rose on on uh, on Sunday, on the 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 last day of the the week, um, or I mean, on the first day of the week. And but in creation, God rested on the last day of of creation, right? And and so we we confuse sometimes Sabbath and Lord Lord's Day. You know, we think of like, well, it's a Lord's Day, so it needs to be a day of rest. But like our worship is our work, right? So it's actually a day of work. We need to have Sabbath as well. And I'm all for like finishing up my work on Sunday morning and then going home and resting and taking my Nazarene nap. Like I can do both. But um, But how we prepare, like when I'm getting up and getting my kids ready and getting out the door and like all of that is, you know, prelude to... Uh, the church's gathered worship. So it's part of what I'm I'm offering up, so to speak, right? Because like I bring all that with me. Um, and I think this is something that, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind to respond to your question is just the language that we use is so important um, to try to instill this in a congregation. I do think from time to time, it's helpful to just teach about it from the pulpit or to have you know opportunities, whether it's in another discipleship setting or something to talk about this and, and to try to teach deeply on it, but just the way that the liturgy itself teaches week to week is forming our understanding of what worship is, so it's really problematic, I think, when, you know, when somebody gets up on Sunday morning and says, okay, before we worship, here's a couple of announcements, and then now we're going to pray, and like, all right, now let's start our worship, right, like, because again, then you're just reinforcing that, like, that stuff, the announcements, the the, the invocation, whatever, like, those things were not worship. And now the guitar player starts strumming, and so now this is worship, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that 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 kind of carelessness with language that reinforces some of those negative not not negative, but just kind of mis, um, misconstrued understandings of what's happening in worship are important. And this is where I think um, you know I, I I'm I'm used to a tradition that's pretty extemporaneous and conversational. Um, that's not, you know, everything scripted out in a a liturgy like a written liturgy, but this is where a good liturgy helps us, I think, um, not be careless in those ways. Um, I I'm all for, you know, uh, for for being casual and conversational in worship and not being like overly, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, like kind of highbrow. Uh, I love high scripted liturgy as well. I love going to the Episcopal Church and getting to experience that from time to time. But that's not my tradition in the Church of the Nazarene. But I still think we need to be conscientious about the language that we use. And yeah, not kind of grinding the gears in the middle of the service, acting like the offering is, you know, okay, we interrupt your regularly scheduled worship service to now ask for money. You know, like, no, this is not, that's not what we're doing. This isn't like, announcements aren't a, a commercial break. Like they're part of, the missional life of the church we announce things that are about like what we're doing in the community how people are coming together for groups and activities you know that like these are the things we announce so they're connected to mission they're connected to our common life they're not an interruption Um, even when we you know pause to recognize somebody's like 50th wedding anniversary or something like that you know in a service um, some people say oh well it, it should all be about God and not spotlighting you know that couple but it's like what are we doing we're giving God praise for his faithfulness to empower this couple to be faithful to their wedding vows for 50 years and celebrating that as part of our common life and giving God the glory for that and you can do it in a way that overly spotlights the individual or the you know or something human or that is deflecting that praise back to God and the same like you said with the offering it's not just pausing to ask for money but saying you know this is part of our worship our it's forming generosity in us to contribute to god's work uh here in the world through the church um and how we fund the the mission and the ministry of of the church and so it's part of our worship as well so i'm constantly like probably to an annoying degree on a sunday morning saying you know let's continue our worship. Let's continue, you know, when we move into the next, because I'm often the one making those transitions, you know, I'll say, uh, you know, let's continue our worship as we move into a time of prayer, or, you know, now as we continue our worship and turn our attention to the word, you know, let's prepare our hearts to receive the message this morning, things like that.
1: Yeah, the, the, the language, kind of that language that you're using, sets that tone, which I, which I like that. Let's continue. Let's continue. I think at one point I said, I know you guys are tired of me saying we're going to continue in worship when we do this, but I think we got to keep reinforcing it. The one thing I liked you said too, is a, you talked about like announcements on our commercial break. It's a, it's, here's how our mission is being, here's how we're doing the mission in this community. Right. And so I think the way that you talk about some of those other things that maybe don't seem like we wouldn't group them in as, as worship, is just as important uh, my, you know, in, in preaching class, you know, they, they say when you're preaching, watch your pronouns. If you say the word you a lot, you're probably not, you're, you're putting yourself in a different position than, than the people you're speaking to. So saying a lot of us and we's kind of in, including yourself and in people that need to learn can help but also in that same sense watching your pronouns quote unquote when you're talking about different elements of worship so hey we're going to talk about announcements i know nobody likes it but these are important things we got to know about the umw has a rummage sale later this week uh and instead of that saying you know one of the things we're called to do is 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 in our in our mission statement or blank 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 and turning that phrase into one that glorifies god and reinforces why it's important that you do those things is is important if that summarizes what you said pretty pretty okay.
0: Yeah, well, and I, absolutely. And I think, you know, we do um yeah, we even I think with the the sacraments, you know, I um I don't I grew up in a tradition that when I was really young probably only did communion maybe four times a year, quarterly, and then through I remember like as a teenager, my dad started doing it a little more regularly and it became more of a monthly practice. My dad's a pastor, so he, you know, he was making those decisions, and it was long before I got interested in sacramental theology, but, like, it always seemed like a deviation from our normal thing. We'd have to have, like, a communion service, and everything had to sort of um, be focused around communion, you know, sort of um, singing all the blood songs, and, you know, the cross songs, and everything. Everything had to be focused on communion, and I remember at my church in Ohio, we we made a transition pretty cold turkey from um, quarterly communion to weekly communion. So it wasn't a ramp up and it wasn't a, we're going to explain this and teach about it for weeks and get everybody ready for it. We just started doing it every week and it, it, how we did it evolved um, over, over time. We started out doing it, um, doing it at kind of in the but in between the music and the sermon our pastor would do like a pastoral prayer time and we would make communion available during that time and then eventually I convinced him to like let's shift this to the end of the service so that it's actually the response to the preaching of the word every week you know in our, in our tradition we have a uh, a long history of giving altar calls and like coming forward to receive communion is an altar call you know being invited to step out and come and and uh, kneel and receive and and uh, participate in Christ's sacrifice in that particular way and so um, so we moved it to the end of the service um, but only after we'd had a lot the pastor and I had a lot of conversations about um, he said so so does that mean like every sermon I preach needs to drive towards communion and and the cross what if I'm what if I'm preaching about finances or what if I'm preaching a series on like family or communication or something like that and I just kind of as diplomatically as possible said I I think if you're preaching a sermon that you can't find some way to like turn it towards the cross and towards the table like it might it probably isn't a sermon that should be preached in a service of Christian worship you know and I probably said it a little more diplomatically than that but like like can can you not think of some way to take a sermon about finances and move it toward, you know, Christ's poured out sacrifice, you know, uh, for the life of the world that we memorialize and participate in and the bread and the cup, you know, like, it, it can't be that hard, right, to turn, turn every sermon towards the cross um, as the basis for what we're doing in the Eucharist. And but I didn't even really think of communion as an act of worship growing up. It was just kind of like this strange little devotional thing that we did with a little thimble full of grape juice and a little stale cracker. And I'm supposed to feel bad about what Jesus did on my behalf or something like that, rather than like seeing it as the church's participation in 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 and Christ making himself present to us through those elements um, in a in a real and tangible way. Um, So my, you know, that's been part of my journey too, is to come to see, you know, our listening to the sermon as an act of worship, our giving in the offering, our participation in, um, in communion and baptism, you know, even the congregation's participation and witness to someone else's baptism as an act of worship and remembering our own baptism as they, as they're baptized into the faith. Like those are all important acts of worship,
1: what what do you think the biggest challenge for, um, you know, you're, you're a pastor in a in a smaller church, you know, maybe you're solo, um, what's sort of the biggest challenge that a pastor would face in kind of growing that worshipful attitude? How could they kind of overcome sort of the like, all right, I only have, I only have 30, 40 hours a week or, you know, whatever you want to say. There's only 24 hours a day. I'm here alone. I've got to preach. I've got to do pastoral visits. I've got, how do I how do I make my time of worship on Sunday from beginning to end, including the sermon? How do I bridge that, make that a little cleaner and better? What are some tips you could maybe throw out to pastors to kind of overcome some of those difficult challenges of time and money or skill availability around the area?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest challenge that I hear about when I'm teaching or you know uh, at conferences that you know when i I actually have a workshop that I've done. Uh, at a handful of conferences called um, something like "Maximizing the Strengths of Smaller Churches in Worship." It's not a very catchy title, but something something like that. Um, and people always come because they're like, "We don't have any musicians, or we don't have any, you know, like we have no budget for technology, or whatever it might be." Right? Those are the often the stresses, like lack of resources, like human resources, lack of financial and technical resources. Um, and I, so I deeply sympathize with that and know that it's a a real, um, challenge. And I think that sometimes one of the best things that pastors can do is just to really simplify what they're doing on Sunday morning and try to, um, again, have like a, have a, a shape that, that orders what you do. So like when I plan worship, we use planning center online, which is a subscription service that I've been using for. I don't know, 10 or 12 years now since it was a pretty new product. And uh, I don't know how we lived without it when we made service plans in Word documents and sent them around to everybody or whatever, <laughs> printed, printed them printed them out, typed them up and used the mimeograph machine way back in the 80s. I don't know, I guess it was before my time, but I'm thankful for Planning Center. And I have a template that, that basically has four uh, headings. And so it's like, we gather for worship, we proclaim the word, we respond to the word, and then like, then we're sent forth, or we're dismissed, you know, Um, the reason Catholics call it the mass is because it's, it has everything to do with the dismissal, like being sent out on mission, the the missa part of dismissal, and mission are, are the word that we get mass from, and so it's interesting that they call their whole service mass, which means like, being sent out on mission, right? Um, so those four acts are, are I think, really important, at least to, to how I think about planning worship. And so everything that we we do when, when we gather, we acknowledge God's presence, we open with prayer, with scripture, um, sometimes with announcements, although sometimes we save them for a different part of the service. And then as we sing and as we hear the word preached, like that's all proclaiming the word. So we proclaim the word, um, the prayers that we do at that time, we always have the kids in our service at the beginning during the singing and then they go out for children's church right before the sermon, but our pastor brings them up front and prays over them and then they leave and uh, go to a different room to receive their lesson except for once a month they stay in and that's the last end of the month when we do communion so they stay in and hear the sermon, and we have communion at the end of the service. Uh, so communion is one of the ways we respond to the word. So after we've sang, sang and heard the uh, the preaching, then we respond. And sometimes that involves communion or another song that we might sing in response. Or sometimes that's where we do the offering as an of response or an altar call or baptism or a baby dedication. Or there's all kinds of different ways that we might respond before then we um, we receive the benediction and we're sent out. As, as part of the dismissal. So just simplifying our structure and then thinking about participation, I think is another key that I would try to encourage, especially solo pastors or pastors of smaller churches. Um, how many different ways are you involving the the congregation and particularly encouraging like bodily participation in in worship? Through, you know, not just stand up and sing, sit down, and listen, but are there other other ways that they can be involved, you know, do they, uh, do you ever throw out a question in the sermon and just say, hey, take, you know, 90 seconds and turn to somebody next to you and talk about this while I, you know, take a sip of my coffee or something, you know, how can you engage them in a different, different ways that kind of keep us um, active participants and not just passive Spectators and 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 that that same principle in terms of leadership as well. You know, you don't have to do everything. You don't have to pray every prayer, or read every scripture. Um, you you know, delegate that. Have somebody get up and, and lead the prayer time, or um, or read the scripture, or give the announcements, or receive the offering. Have lay people in the congregation take leadership over some of those aspects of the service. Um, those are just some things that come to mind that I think sometimes we over we overburden worship. Um, the, I, I kind of think of it like this: that you know, there's four principal tasks of the church to fulfill its mission, um, and so I, I I categorize those as worship, discipleship, evangelism, and compassion sometimes we we say, we think of mission as just like the kind of compassionate acts that we do. I think all four of those things together, worship, discipleship, evangelism, and compassion, together make up the mission of the church. But my concern as a worship guy a lot of times is that we treat the worship service as the place where we're doing our primary efforts in discipleship and the place where we're doing our primary efforts in evangelism. Like, so we want the gathered worship service to be the place where, like, lost people might get saved and where the saints are being primarily discipled in their own faith. And we forget that the purpose of worship first and foremost is just to give God glory because God deserves our our praise, right? It's it's that God is the audience, not the congregation. The congregation are the performers that are performing for an audience of one. And so we over we overladen the service with things that are that are for for us or for people or for, you know, um, or for evangelistic purposes or for discipleship purposes that ideally would be happening in other contexts as well outside. Of course, people can get saved in a worship service. Thanks be to God, right? Of course, worship, gathered worship contributes to our discipleship. So like, yes, it overlaps with discipleship and with evangelism, but it, it shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the primary focus, right, of gathered worship. Um, anyway.
1: What are what are some, uh, some things you could point pastors to, to kind of maybe help them maybe learn more about uh, creating service liturgy, uh, those sort of things like books, podcasts, TED talks, uh, (laughs) that they could go to and say, hey, this is really great to help you structure your worship, to maybe dive in, to see how you could make something more worshipful, um, or to kind of, kind of engage with this topic a little, a little
0: deeper. I mean, of course, as a teacher and scholar, you know, a whole list of books comes to mind right away, but um, the ones that I use in in our seminary classes that you'll be familiar with, of course, Phil, but um, are Constance Cherry's books. She taught here at Indiana Wesleyan for, um, I think, 16 years or so. She just retired last year, um, but she has a really great book that's just been reissued in its second edition called The Worship Architect. That's just a really good read, very accessible. Um, that flows out of you know, a couple decades of teaching as well as a couple decades before that of being a church musician and a worship director. Um, so I really admire her and her work. Um, it, it, it's almost kind of frustrating as a scholar because like she's sort of already written the book that I would want to write if it didn't already exist, you know, and so I just endorse her book and encourage people to read it. Um, my friend Tim Brooks, Timothy Brooks has a book out called "The Transform- The Transformational Power of worship do I have a copy of it handy I'm I'm afraid I'm getting the name wrong um, I guess I have the internet I could look it up it's either the formational power of worship or the transformational power of worship and um, he he gets into kind of how we use uh, not just the the time that we have in worship but um, how we also engage culture within worship? Yeah, the formational power of worship, leading your community with intention, and it's a real handy little short uh, book written for pastors. He's a pastor, and um, it uh, it flowed out of his doctoral work, and I was involved in in, in kind of supervising some of his doctoral research. Um, but he, he talks about how, uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's principle of t- the 10,000 hour rule like becoming a, an expert or a master of a particular discipline. And he just kind of ran, ran some quick math and said, like, if all you did was go to church on Sunday for like your entire, say 80 years of life, you wouldn't hit the 10,000 hour mark in, in terms of mastery of, of, of Christian liturgy or Christian worship. Um, if that's the only place that you're kind of, um, practicing your faith, so to speak. Um, Whereas by comparison, we're out in the world and participating in the kind of liturgies of secular culture all the time. Um, So how, so like it's, you know, how, how would we ever win, so to speak, against the, the culture in terms of how we're being formed through the, the liturgies of our lives, right? And so one of the arguments that he makes is, is how to is around how we engage culture in the context of worship so that when we go back out into the world, things that we're doing, watching, engaging with in culture become reminders of our faith and of our discipleship. Like if we can, with the amplifying power of the Holy Spirit, kind of redeem some of those practices, stories, symbols, uh, rituals, you know, whether it's sports or movies or, you know, how we engage Uh, online you know all those things can can be redeemed and brought into the discipleship process and brought into even what we do on sunday mornings so that the power of what we do in that concentrated time on sunday morning continues to have power out in the everyday moments of our lives um so that's a handy book um yeah is that enough i don't know that's good yeah (laughs) probably come up with books you know (laughs) That's two I'm, books. It's like two whole
1: uh, books. Yeah. And and, and, and I should say Yeah. Constance go ahead. is yeah. It's kind of the worship architect. I someone I know got hired and is a worship person at a church. I was like, just buy this book, just read yeah. it. Yeah.
0: Like, <laughs> well, and I should put in a plug too that she she also has like the architect uh theme is kind of a series that she's done with Baker. So she has a, a book called The Music Architect that's more specifically um like it goes deeper into particularly how we use music in worship. Um, and it's really great. I use it in another class that I teach that's on music and the arts and worship. And, um, and then she has one called the special services architect that's kind of dealing with communion and baptism and weddings and funerals and things like that, that, that are not, maybe are just every Sunday morning worship, but other special services. Um, and I think anything, you know, a book that really, um, transformed my my thinking around the the sacraments. I mean, I'm always encouraging people to read kind of outside their own um, theological tradition, and so I've gained a whole lot from reading Eastern Orthodox and Catholic authors on worship and on sacraments. And so Alexander Schmemann, S C H M E M A N N, is a uh, 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 Eastern Orthodox theologian who's written this book called for the Life of the World about sacraments um, is a chapter on what for the Eastern Orthodox tradition there's seven sacraments not just baptism and communion but he talks about marriage and ordination and and confession and um, sacrament of healing unction you know he goes he goes further than just the the Protestant sacraments but um, that book was really uh, impactful in, in my understanding of how God works through the created order in administering grace to us through the sacraments.
1: Nice. I'll definitely have to reference you spelling that name to put it in the bottom of the video description here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, last thing it's, I caught it's the last word. So uh, kind of Brandon's last word about worship, either something you want people to definitely know, or something I forgot to ask you about that you want to make sure people hear It's Brandon's last word.
0: Mm. you know I have heard people say that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than like hanging out in the garage makes you a car something like that you know have you heard that I've heard that that type of an analogy and um But I would say that like, if you wanted to be somebody who knew about cars, you'd probably spend some time in the garage and probably with somebody who knew more than you about cars. (laughs) So I think that uh, if we want people to have lives that reflect Christ and that look discernibly Christian (laughs) in the midst of a culture that doesn't have any real clue what that means or what that looks like. Uh, They need to get around other Christians and spend time in church and learn uh, the the practices of the faith.
1: I love it. Brandon, thanks so much uh, for joining and uh, hope to see you again soon. That's it for this episode of Drinks for the Pastor as part of the Imagine Church Ministry Network. Make sure that you subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date with all of our episodes, as well as check out our YouTube channel for other instructional videos
0: and church tours so that we can continue to imagine church ministry together.